Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Um, we've got a, a special treat here this morning. I picked up an Irishman on the way back to town here uh, uh, yesterday afternoon. So uh, Philip DeCourcy is back here with us. I'll tell you the story real quickly. I don't want to take too much of his time. Philip and I were speaking over at a Worldview Conference outside of Springfield, Missouri. A lot of people from our church were there um, at this, and uh, he couldn't get out of Oklahoma City. They can't get out till this afternoon. So I told him if he came back here, he had to preach this morning at our church. So um, he said that'd be great. He'd love to do that. Um, he's not going to be able to be here this coming December. He often comes every December. So I think in God's providence, the Lord has, uh, has Philip here with us this morning. So uh, we're looking forward to his ministry um, here with us this morning. His wife, June, is here. She's uh, going to come, I think, to the 945 service with my wife. Uh, they don't like to listen to us more than once. Uh, so, um, But anyway, Philip, it's great to have you back here with us. Uh, we believe it's God's uh, providence that you're here with us. We're sorry you didn't get back to your church, and we certainly will be praying for them this morning. But come on up here and, and minister the Word of God to us. May the Lord bless you as you minister. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. It's always a joy to be with you, and uh, I believe that all things work together for good, so this is uh, meant to be. Uh, and uh, if you've come uh, to hear Mark and you were looking forward to that, let me give you a little bit of a perspective. Um, I remember reading about Robert G. Lee, who was a famous Southern Baptist preacher. He was followed, actually, by Adrian Rogers at the famous uh, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, he traveled a bit to a point where uh, one of his members got a little irked at the thought that he was out of the pulpit on a pretty regular basis. And so one particular Sunday morning when he was there, she accosted him and kind of said, you know what, Pastor, I don't like you being away. I miss it when you're not in the pulpit. Well, he says, let me give you a perspective on that. He says, look, whoever fills the pulpit when I'm away, um, if, he's, if he's good, even better than me, you'll be thankful. And he, and, he, and he says, but if he's not, then you'll be thankful I'll be back in the pulpit the week later. Uh, and anyway, you'll be thankful. And uh, that, 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 I hope, is a perspective that uh, you'll have, that if I, if I deliver a good one, you'll be thankful. If it's, uh, if I, uh, you know, if it's a goose egg, you'll be thankful that Mark's back in the pulpit uh, next Sunday morning. But it's a joy for us to be here. I think I've said on several occasions, I think outside of my own pulpit, uh, this is the pulpit I think I've preached in most regularly, and it's always an honor to be here, to be with you. Uh, we enjoyed a few days with your pastor and his wife, who we kind as dear friends. So let's take God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and verses 10 through 13. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, and I want to speak on the subject this morning, Ready for Anything. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Um, you know, we're either going into trouble, we're either in trouble, or we're coming out of trouble, about to go back into trouble. And, and yet we're ready for it all uh, because of the grace and strength that Jesus Christ supplies. So let's take a little look at this wonderful passage of God's Word together. Follow along as I read God's holy word. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I'm reading from the New King James translation of God's word. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. 
I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love to play golf, but I'm not sure I want to play the Calcutta Country Club and golf course in Calcutta, India. And the reason I'm not sure I want to play at that golf club and that golf course is rule 10 in the handbook. If you get your hand on a handbook, you'll read that rule 10 says, play the ball where the monkey drops it. Now, let me give you the back story to that. Because this beautiful golf course is surrounded by lush and thick magnolia trees that line the fairways. And in those trees are hundreds and hundreds of monkeys. And for some reason, they have... uh, Again, this fascination for bouncing golf balls. And when a golf ball is teed and hit down the fairway, they come running out, in most cases, and try and grab one of the bouncing balls. Now, sometimes they get away with their crime, and they're off with their booty back into the trees. But more often than not, they drop it because they're being chased down the fairway by a mad caddy swinging a foreiron. And you know what? This is just so regular an occurrence at this golf course that the uh, the hires up in the club have decided, you know what, you're just going to have to play the ball where the monkey drops it. Now, as I thought about that, life can be like playing golf at the Calcutta Country Club in India. Life has a way of messing with our game plan. We tee life up just the way we want it. We take a swing at success, and then things change. Sickness, opposition, financial reversal, relational breakdown, betrayal, our own poor choices, and we find ourselves with a bad lie playing out of the rough. Life is a way of messing with our game plan. And when that happens, you and I must master the skill of playing the ball where life make it, but 90% how you take it. You and I have got to learn the skill of playing life where it drops the ball. We cannot control what happens around us, but we can control what happens within us in response to what happens around us. In fact, Warren Wearsby says this, that life does to us, it all depends on what life finds in us. You know what? Life should find in the Christian a sense of sufficiency. This is Paul's testimony, isn't it? Here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He wants us to know, given whatever circumstance he is in, that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He can play out of the rough. He can play life where it drops him. And I want us to look at this wonderful passage. I want us to look at a man for all seasons. I want to look at a man who testifies to the fact that he's ready for anything. I also want you to know that he didn't write this sitting in an armchair. He didn't write this in the belly of a library in a seminary building somewhere in the United States. This is A.D. 62. 
He's experiencing his first imprisonment. You can read about it in Acts 28. It will last about two years. These are not easy circumstances. His life hangs in the balance. He's not sure whether his life will be taken or he will live, but either way, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, he's almost lost a friend, Epaphroditus, who was at death's door, but the Lord spurred Paul from another sorrow. He tells us in chapter 1 that some young, up-and-coming, ambitious, jealous ministers of the gospel were cashing in on his absence. He tells us that some of the false teachers were infecting the church at Philippi, and that concerned him. But he wants us to know that while things conspired to bring him down, he was up to whatever life sent his way and tried to bring him down. And so we can learn from him this, this art of contentment. So if you're following along this morning, there's three things I want us to consider. Number one, his celebration. Number two, his contentment. And number three, his confidence. Let's look at his celebration. That's verse 10. He celebrates the fact that he has once again come to experience the kindness, the love, and the care of the Philippian church. Most commentators would argue that it's been several years since he saw them. It's been several years since they had been in contact with him. But they had sent the Epaphroditus, you can read about that in chapter 2 and verse 25, recently to Paul in Rome to minister to his necessity. And he is so thankful for that. And he celebrates that fact. Look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Paul here expresses his thanks. Paul here confesses his gratitude. Paul is deeply appreciative of their renewed concern for him. Now, there are many purposes to this letter. We've kind of talked about them in the introduction. He wants to you know, update them on his own circumstances. He wants them to know, although he's imprisoned, and under house arrest, that these things have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. God is sovereign, and Jesus is the head of his church, and he's leading Paul always in triumph. That's one of the purposes of the book. He also wants to challenge them not to settle for a limited experience of God. In chapter 3, he tells them to forget those things which are behind and to press forward in their walk with God, to know more of Jesus' love, to experience more of that resurrection power. He warns them about false teachers and the danger of the doctrine of circumcision. He wants to explain why Epaphroditus is being sent back when he had been sent to him from them, and he wants them to know that he was sick, and Paul thought it would be good if he went home to Philippi. But I think more than anything, this letter is a receipt of thanks there was a deep and an abiding bond between Paul and this church. This was the first church in Europe. He founded it. And we read in chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank my God upon every day that now at last your curve for me has flourished again. And he goes on in chapter 4 to express his deep thanks. And so his thanks for them and their gift sent by Epaphroditus explains this letter. It's the bookends of this 
epistle, thankfulness, gratitude, and expression of appreciation for them by the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you look at verse 15 and 16, you'll see that of chapter 4. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And in verse 10 he says, they're doing it again. Their love for him was real, and their care for him was repeated. In fact, go back to verse 10. There's a beautiful word. If you like gardening or into horticulture or agriculture to any degree, this is your word. He talks about their cur flourishing again. This is a Greek term that speaks about uh, flowers that are blossoming in the spring or trees that are sending forth new shoots of life. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, as I thought about that in Paul's imprisonment, here's the way I saw that. He's thanking them that they have brought a touch of spring to his winter season. He's imprisoned. He's facing deprivation. He's not sure if uh, he will live or die. There are jealous ministers who are making it rather hard for Paul, cashing in on his imprisonment. He's concerned about their well-being. He's concerned about the threat of error to this young and growing church. But in the midst of his winter, Epaphroditus comes and brings a touch of spring, a little bit of sunshine, a little bit of a blue sky to Paul's gray circumstances. And so that's his celebration. Now, we could leave it, but let me just apply it quickly. This isn't the main part of my message, so I'm not going to kind of drill down on this too much. But one thought to me was, if you read Paul, he says, you know what? You occurred, but you lacked opportunity. They were separated by time and by space. If you read about the Philippian church in the letter to the Corinthians, they were rather poor. So, so why hadn't they got to Paul earlier than this? Maybe he wasn't in need. Maybe they didn't have the resources to meet his need. Maybe it was difficult to get to him. We're not sure. He simply says, I know if you, if you could have got here earlier, you would have. The issue isn't your care. The issue is circumstances, opportunity. And I said to myself one day reading that, and I would challenge you and me, I think it's the inverse when it comes to you and me in the modern congregation. Our issue isn't that we don't have opportunity to bless God's people or alleviate people all around us within our immediate reach that you and I could bless and bring the love of Christ too. Paul says for them, it wasn't a lack of care. It was a lack of opportunity. For us, it's never a lack of opportunity or resources. Often it's a lack of care. Let's, let's be challenged by that. Is there, is there someone within reach of your life that needs your love, a word spoken in terms of encouragement or just some practical Christian love that comes in the guise of green, green dollar bills? But here's the other thing. Although we're going to get to the, to the heart of this message and the secret of Paul's contentment, and that's verse 13. Whatever his circumstance, he could deal with that circumstance because he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. That's the secret to contentment. I don't want to overlook the fact that, you know what? 
Gratitude and thanksgiving can be a good antidote to discontentment also. And that's what you have here. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has furnished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. We don't want to pass over this thought that, you know what? A grumbling spirit breeds discontentment. And Paul warns in chapter 2 and verse 13, let nothing be done by grumbling or murmuring or complaining. And so while grumbling and complaining produces discontentment, thanksgiving, gratitude, appreciation for the least of God's blessings, that produces contentment. And I think that's a word to a complaining heart. That's a word to a discontent spirit. That's a word to an unhappy attitude. Renew your gratitude for God's grace, for the kindnesses of His providence, for the love of God's people. Because thanksgiving, gratitude, a renewed appreciation for God's goodness and mercy, number one, it builds confidence in God. Because as you and I take stock of God's faithfulness, our faith in the faithfulness of God rises and makes us more courageous in our circumstances. Because the God who has been with us is with us, and He will not forsake us regardless of how this thing turns out. Also, gratitude produces humility. Discontentment is the product of pride. I deserve better than this. I should have more than this. But gratitude humbles us. Gratitude renews the wonder of God's grace and brings us to a place, you know what? If I really was being truthful to myself, I'm doing better than I deserve. But also thankfulness gives us perspective. If you bring a happy attitude, if you bring a sense of wonder, if you bring a spirit of humility, and you bring a a desire to to see good in the bad, you'll be surprised how grace is, is generated by gratitude. I think one of the best examples of that is, is the life of, of um, Matthew Henry. You probably have, or many of you have, his one-volume commentary in the Bible. He was a Puritan commentator, and I love the story I came across some years ago about when he was robbed. And after he was robbed and his money was taken and he went home, he wrote down four things he was thankful for. Let me read them to you. Number one... Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Now, that wouldn't be my first thought. I'm thinking justice. I'm thinking bounty hunters. I'm thinking a dead or alive poster. No, that's not Matthew Henry. Here's what he says. Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Number two, although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Wow. Number three... Because although they took all that I had, it wasn't much. And number four, because it was I who was robbed and not someone else. Wow. See what gratitude does? That that experience of being robbed, he, he saw it completely different through the eyes of gratitude. Thanksgiving. So, so you know, gratitude 
a renewed appreciation for God's love and grace in our lives will, will produce contentment in the midst of circumstances. So uh, that's number one, his celebration. Number two, what I call his contentment. This is verses 11 through 12. 11 through 12. And here's what's interesting. With the same breath that has expressed appreciation for what they have done, he wants them to know quickly that he doesn't seek their gift, he doesn't covet their gift, and he's going to pivot to the issue of contentment here and argue for the fact that his contentment doesn't need his gift. That's amazing, isn't it? You could read it wrongly and almost see it as a backhand kind of uh, slap uh, to their kindness, but that's not his point. He's saying, you know what, I'm thankful for what you did really appreciative of your kindness that it has flourished again. But let me tell you about my circumstances here in Rome. I'm going through my first imprisonment. We know biblically it's going to last about two years. You know what? Uh, he, he's not, uh, you know, having a vacation in Rome here. Thankful for what they did. He wants him to know, despite his circumstances, he's ready for anything. He's up for anything. The grace of God has strengthened him to such a degree he is living victoriously in the midst of this. And while he's thankful for their gift, it wasn't their gift that produced the contentment. In fact, here's what's interesting in this text. Scroll down to verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. You know what Paul's saying there? I'm more excited about what your gift to me will produce for you than what it has done for me. That's an amazing thought. I, this is going to abound to your eternal account. Do you realize the only thing we get to keep after this life are the things we give away, the things we invested in God's kingdom, the things that we gave for the benefit of others and the enrichment of those we love. And, and it's amazing. Paul is saying, I'm more excited about what this gift's going to do for you than what does for me because I want you to know what I'm thankful for what you did. My contentment, my happiness lies somewhere else. So let's look at his contentment. Because what are we trying to do here? We're trying to learn the art of playing life where it drops the ball. And there's three things about his contentment. Number one, it's dynamic. Number two, it's developing. And number three, it's divine. We'll get through these fairly quickly. Notice first, it's a dynamic contentment. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the words of verses 11 and 12. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Notice those words. I have learned to be content in the middle of verse 12 in all things and everywhere. That's a staggering statement. It's dynamic. I'm content in every situation. At any time, you'll find me content in Jesus Christ. If we go back to the, uh, the idea of a plant, their love flourishing again, if Paul was a plant, he'd be a perennial the flower of Christian contentment and peace flowers continually in the life of Paul. Everywhere and in all things, 
I'm content because you see, the Christ who is over me and is Lord of my circumstances is within me by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit fortifying me in my circumstances to live triumphantly. He's got a dynamic contentment. Here's what Paul's saying. I know what it is to be full and I know what it is to be empty. Here's what he's saying. When I'm enjoying plenty, I'm not more content. And when I'm experiencing less, I'm not less content. Because everywhere and in all things, whether full or empty, I'm content. That's dynamic. Here's what Paul's saying. A cloudy day cannot remove my contentment, and a sunny day does not supply my contentment. My contentment's in Christ and the sufficiency of God's grace and the never-ending truth of God's love. Here's what Paul is saying. My contentment is not external. It is internal. You want to write that down. Contentment is internal, not external. That's challenging, isn't it? Because when you and I talk about circumstances and contentment within our circumstances, here's what we're apt to say. Wouldn't you agree with this? I would be content if. You can fill in the blank. If I was healthier. If my children were more obedient, if my husband was more loving, if my wife was more submissive, if my employer appreciated me a bit more, if I had a few more dollars in my pocket, supply the blank. I would be content if. That doesn't enter into the thinking of Paul. I'm content wherever, whatever, whenever. See, our happiness is too often tied to our happenings. You you would agree, I think, with these words. They're challenging, convicting by Charles Swindoll in his book, Simple Faith. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, youth and free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Paul always enjoyed where he was in the time he was in, regardless of the circumstances, because he had a dynamic contentment. Secondly, he had a developing contentment. This contentment wasn't instant and it wasn't instinctive. You'll be glad to know. He learned it over time. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned 
Circle that. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to abase, be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. Notice again, I have learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. This is not only a dynamic experience of contentment. It's a developing experience of contentment. Understand this, that contentment is not the fruit of a certain temperament. Understand this, that contentment is not the result of a spiritual gift. Understand this, that contentment doesn't come and it is not the outcome of a certain crisis in your life. So you go through a certain experience, you come out the other end, and voila, you're content. No, it's not even the result of prayer or a series of Bible sermons on contentment. Let me tell you what contentment is and how it comes about. You need to think about this, even write this statement down if you can get most of it. Contentment is acquired through hard work in the school of hard knocks over time. Let me say that again. Contentment is acquired through hard work. You learn it. You work at it. You study it. You pass the exams that God sends your way. Contentment is acquired through hard work in the school of hard knocks over time. It's learned. You don't learn it once and then you have it. It's not a spiritual gift. It doesn't come at the end of a three-month series here in the church on it. It's hard work. You've got to apply yourself to learning it. It's, it's certainly not a gift of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, if it's learned over time, the most contented people in the church ought to be our senior saints. And yet the devil's crowning work is a better old person who never seems to have learned contentment, who's failed all the exams that God has sent their way. And instead of getting better, they've got better, and they're grumpy. And, you know, if they go down one aisle in the church, you go down the other. That's a sad sight because this is something learned across a lifetime and it's the sorrows that God puts us through where we learn how glorious He is and sufficient His Son can be that we come out of that with, with the smile of God's grace upon our lives. I want you to notice something here. Verse um, 12, in fact, verse 11, that, that first word for learned in verse 11 is a, is a typical word that just means the acquisition of knowledge. But the second word in chapter 12, learned, is very interesting. It comes out of the world of mystery Eastern religions. It's a word that belongs to secret societies. And the different degrees of knowledge you acquire within this secret society. Maybe the best way to kind of apply it or make it analogous to you and I. If you've watched maybe the, the movies, you know, National Treasure or one of the Indiana Jones movies, you'll find one of the, the heroes at some point in a labyrinth or in, you know, a set of, of caves or caverns or chambers that belong to this kind of, you know, sect or, or cult. And, and, and they've got to work out the secret within that, that chamber that takes them through the door into the next chamber. And then they go from there and you get your hearts beating, you're getting excited as they go from one chamber to the next chamber to get the treasure or, or, or to get the secret. And that's the word Paul's using. And I find that so, so challenging and so illustrative of, of, of what God is trying to say here. He's saying, you know what? Your circumstances are like a room or a chamber that I shut you up in. And I've got something for you to learn 
about me, about yourself, about the sufficiency of God's grace, about the great and exceeding nature of God's promises, about the sweetness of the comfort of the indwelling Spirit, whatever that is. And I want you to learn that lesson. And now when you've learned that lesson, I'm going to open the door and we're going to do another chamber, another set of circumstances. And I'm going to learn, you're going to learn something more. And your grade point average is going to go up spiritually. And you're going to learn contentment through these circumstances I put you through. So if you're fighting the circumstances you're in right now, you're fighting God's work in you and the purposes of His providence around you. That even in the bitterness and the loss and the heartache, He wants you to learn dependence upon Him. He wants to prove Himself faithful. He wants to teach you things that you can teach others, the comfort with which you have been comforted, you can comfort others. Hmm. Let me try and illustrate this and move on. Ray Pritchard is a new friend of mine. He's written many books, and several years ago he was listening to a moody broadcast, and the, 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 the broadcaster said something that really struck him. Talking about the trials of life, talking about the, the issues of life, here's what the broadcaster said, be a student, not a victim. And that stayed with him. And one day he sat down and, and wrote the difference between being a victim and being a student. I want to read some of these to you from Ray Pritchard. He says this, a victim says, why did this happen to me? A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim blames other people for his problems. A student asks, how much of this did I bring on myself? A victim looks at everyone else and cries out, life isn't fair. A student looks at life and says, what happened to me could happen to anyone. A victim believes his hard times have come because God is trying to punish him. A student understands that God allows hard times to, in order to grow him. A student believes that the deck of life, or a victim believes that the deck of life is forever stacked against him. A student believes that God is able to reshuffle the cards anytime he wants. A victim begs God to remove the problems of life so that he might be happy. A student has learned through the problems of life that God alone is the source of happiness. It's a great word. Google that and find it. Put in Ray Pritchard, be a student or a victim, and get that print it off, frame it, and stick it somewhere in your kitchen. It's a great word. Every day you get up, you don't know what circumstances you're going to be in, how the morning will change in the afternoon and the evening, and things may be altogether different when you're going to bed from when you get up. But the issue is, are you going to be a student or are you going to be a victim? Are you going to learn that God is enough? in the midst of your circumstances. Because that brings us to the last thought, which will bring us to our last thought. This, this contentment is dynamic. It's for all seasons. It's developing. It's learned. And thirdly, it's divine. It's divine. Let, let me um, look at the word content. We've been talking about contentment, yet we haven't defined contentment. This word contentment carries the idea of sufficiency. It's actually a Stoic word. It's from the philosophy of Stoicism, where, where you kind of detach yourself from dependence upon others. You kind of become unemotional. You become, you know, 
independent of others, dependent upon yourself, and you learn to master your emotions and your moods, and you don't allow circumstances to get on top of you. It's kind of the British stiff upper lip. It's the kind of philosophy, you know, grit your teeth and grind it out, where you are up for whatever life throws your way. And Paul says, I like that word. I'm going to take it. I'm going to baptize it with Christian meaning. And Paul takes that word and he uses it to remind us that our sufficiency is in God and God is in us. So we are sufficient for the circumstances. In fact, Warren Wearsby in a wonderful little sermon on contentment says you could substitute the word contentment with containment. A good word for content is contain. And Paul is saying, in the midst of my circumstances, I'm contained. I have within me all that is necessary to beat this thing. But he's not talking about his own self-mastery, right? He's talking about the fact that grace has mastered him. And there is within him this artesian well of God's grace and God's mercy that makes him up for whatever is coming down. You get the point? Contentment means, listen... We have a God-centered, Christ-enabled, grace-supplied capacity to adjust to any circumstances and advance within those circumstances. Because God's enough. I love 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. That God can supply all grace in all things with all sufficiency. Which brings us to our last thought. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's really setting us up for this last thought. His confidence, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is my sufficiency. I, I, it's not self-mastery. It's not human fortitude. It's, it's God-centered, grace-enabled, Christ-fortified capacity to live in whatever circumstances the providence cause has you in for that moment and to survive and to thrive. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, my friend. Because the God who is above you and over your circumstances is within you by the indwelling Holy Spirit supplying all that you need to overcome in the midst of those circumstances. And remember, you know what, this is, this is a verse that has been abused, hasn't it? This doesn't mean you can do all things like raising the dead or walking on water or leaping over buildings in one bound. You, you see sports teams, don't you? Christian sports teams, you know, they have a tattooed on their headband or on their t-shirts as they go into the gym and sweat it out. You know, I can do all things through Christ. That's an abuse of that verse. You might go to the first tee and say to yourself, you know what, today... I'm going to shoot a 72 because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, you're still going to stink because that's not, that's not the point of the verse. Let me connect it for you and we'll wrap this up. L look at the verse. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ. All things, they're defined for you in verse 12. Everywhere and in all things. God puts you in. Paul is not in easy circumstances, but there in the providence of God, by the grace of God, he's going to live out the will of God for the glory of God, overcoming by the power of God. That's what that means. This is a present tense verb. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One translation could put it like this, I can do all things through Christ who keeps pouring his strength into me. You realize as we close this morning that the faucet of God's grace is always turned on? And you can take the bucket of your life any moment to that and get filled with the peace that passes all understanding, with the joy that's inexpressible. You can leave in the belief and confidence that I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. You don't need to lie down. You can play the ball where the monkey drops it. You can play out of the rough. You can still make a swing at success. You can overcome because God's grace makes you sufficient. I don't know if I've told you this story. Uh, Several years ago, we became proud citizens of the United States. We were coming out of the Staples Center in Los Angeles as a family, got into the car driving home celebrating uh, the fact that we were newly minted American citizens. And so I thought with our, you know, uh, girls who were young women at the States, girls on the way home here, let, let's, let's think about this. Why, why are we glad about being American citizens? What is it we love about America? And I started it off, and I, you know, I said, girls, you know what I love about America? Irish and Scottish history, your mom and dad's countries, it's tied to the, the story of the United States. In fact, girls, if you look at the War of Independence, it was nothing but a Scots-Irish rebellion. That's what an English politician said. You know? Their stories are story, and the Irish have found a great home in this country. Think about religious freedom. Think about how the United States rescued Europe in the Second World War. Condoleezza's right, girls, that you know what? When it comes to an American soldier, the only foreign soil they occupy is the soil they're buried beneath. And I went on about this, waxing eloquent. And from the back of the car, our, our, our youngest daughter, Bess, said, Dad, can I tell you why I love America? Or what I love about America? I said, sure, Bess. What do you love about America? She said, Dad, I love free refills. <laughs> Here's me getting into history and politics, the big picture. And our youngest daughter says, Dad, I love free refills. And you'll if you've ever been to Europe, you'll understand that. You know, you got to mortgage your house for a Coca-Cola. It's ridiculous. I remember coming to the States many years ago, my first visit, driving to Disneyland with Phil Johnson out of John MacArthur's church. We went into a 7-Eleven, and he said, you want something to drink? I said, yeah, get me a Diet Coke. And he comes out with the gulp. You know, if you come from Europe, you're like, wow, do you swim in this? Do they give you a bodyguard? It's, it's crazy. And you know what? Beth was right, and we had a real laugh in the car. And then we kind of turned it spiritual and said, girls, isn't it wonderful? We get free refills of God's grace every day. John 1, 16, grace upon grace, grace in the place of grace. Friends, I don't know what circumstance you're in. I don't know what God's trying to do, but he wants to teach you a lesson about himself, about you, about his grace. Maybe some sin you need to repent of. Learn the lesson. Graduate from that chamber. Become more content, centered in him, and learn that he is sufficient, and be an overcoming Christian, and, and, and learn to play life wherever it drops the ball, because you're ready for anything. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time in the Word this morning. This is a rich passage. We trust as we mine it, we'd come away with the gold of, of the truth that, that you love us. We are more than conquerors through that love that circumstances should not overcome us. 
or overwhelm us because our God is sovereign and through him we are sufficient. Lord, life will do to us what life finds in us and may life find us in Christ and Christ in us, the hope of glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Philip. I'm glad, glad we picked you up there along the road to bring you here today. That was, that was awesome. I, I, that was God's providence for you to be here, I know, for my life and for many others here as well. Thank you so much for being here with us. Sam, for the benediction. And if you are a guest or a visitor, we're glad you're here with us this morning. Thank you for coming out on this dreary morning. And uh, if you're with us as a visitor, go out these doors and go to your right. There's a welcome center there. There's some folks there that'd love to welcome you and um, answer any questions you have about our church. Father, we thank you for this word we've heard this morning, uh, the word of God. And the Lord, as we leave this place, we pray that each one of us here would go forth in this coming week and draw upon the sufficiency that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we would learn to be in this school of contentment and become more and more satisfied in each day with all that you give to us. Father, thank you for the good things of life that you provide for each one of us. May your name be praised forever. All God's people said, Amen.